We'll take your Bibles, open with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of Philippians, we find ourselves this morning in this wonderful and familiar passage in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. When I was a missionary in Slovakia in Central Europe, I decided to take a few days off and travel to Serbia to visit some friends of mine who were there. And the goal of this little trip was really just to visit some friends and have a little bit of time to rest and relax. But when I got to town, the pastor of the Baptist church there found out that I was there and immediately asked me to preach. This always seems to happen. And uh, I didn't understand exactly what the occasion was, but they said that it was Ascension Day. Now, we are not in the habit of celebrating Ascension Day, but uh, Ascension Day is celebrated about 40 days after Easter, always on a Thursday. And the celebration is uh, of the Ascension of Jesus Christ, that moment recorded uh, primarily in the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts when Jesus, after his resurrection and after he appeared to over 500, was ascended back into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. I don't know why I remember this so vividly, but I remember going out to a park and having nothing but my Bible, and on a Thursday morning, having to prepare a sermon for Ascension Day and realizing that apart from the actual facts of the Ascension, I had no idea what to say. I had about five hours before I was a guest preacher on Ascension Day, and I literally couldn't think of anything to say. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you heard a really good sermon on the ascension of Jesus Christ? I mean, we we hear a lot on the birth of Jesus Christ at least once a year. We hear a lot on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which hopefully should be week to week. We hear a bunch about the cross of Jesus Christ, but very rarely do we hear about the ascension of Jesus Christ. But think about this. Jesus was a baby for maybe a year. He was on the cross and crucified for maybe six hours. He rose in a split second. Yet for 2,000 years, Jesus has been ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, and yet we know very little about what he's doing right now. I am confident there's no aspect of the life of Jesus more overlooked than the ascension of Jesus Christ. Yet it's all throughout the New Testament. It is not only prophesied in the Old Testament, it's mentioned over and over, not only in the Gospels, but particularly in the epistles. The New Testament believers seem to think that the ascension of Jesus Christ was critical for us. Even when Peter preaches the Gospel at Pentecost, he talks about the ascension of Jesus Christ as if it was important for us to understand the ascension in order to be saved. So in the New Testament, the ascension is always seen as both theologically significant and practically essential. It's not just important theologically. It is true that the ascension of Jesus Christ does give us some important theological truths, but as the New Testament uses it, it is used for our practical application. And here it is right here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, not given to us in some heady, weighty theological text, but given to us right at the end of an intensely practical text of Scripture. Now, Paul, let's remember the context, is writing to the Philippian believers, begging them to be together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The key verse, chapter 1, verse 27, he's praying that they would be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he says this, I want you to be in one spirit with one mind together for the gospel. Then in chapter 2, he comes back and he says, I want you to have the same mind and the same love, to be of full accord, to be of one mind. And so the call right here in Philippians is a call for the church of Jesus Christ, it's the call this morning to be together. Unified, not just to get along, but to be moving together in the same direction for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the pathway to that kind of unity is selfless humility. You say, say, well, how do we as a church move in the right direction? Well, the answer, according to Philippians 2, is selfless humility, the humility modeled for us by Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is seen in Philippians 2 as the great example of the way in which we are to live in relation to one another. Namely, putting every single other person's preference above ours. Serving, giving ourselves completely to the needs of others. And let me just remind you, this is not just the pathway to unity in the church. This is the pathway to unity in the home and in the workplace. The answer to disunity is always selfless humility, specifically the selfless humility of Christ. So Paul talks to us about Jesus in this incredible display of humility, descends, he comes from heaven, and he does not take all of his rights and privileges and honor with him, but he humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it is this massive descent of Jesus, eternally existing as God, God in the flesh, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself in the likeness of man. But Paul does not finish with the descent of Jesus, because that would not be a full understanding of the gospel. Again, this is where often our understanding of the gospel falls short. We do not simply end with the death and the burial and even the resurrection of Christ, neither does Paul. Paul says if we're going to understand this correctly, we must understand that the one who descended is the one who also ascended. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Let me read verses 1 through 11. If you're there at Philippians 2, say amen. amen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So here's the great descent of Jesus Christ from heaven to earth, the form of a servant, dying a criminal's death. And here's what happened as a result, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that 
At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, just like last week's text, which is a rich theological text, yet also has practical applications, so it is this morning in verses 9 through 11. There are really two parts of this that we have to understand. We have to understand what this tells us about Jesus, because it does say something about Jesus and who he is and what he is doing and the demands that he makes from our lives. So I want us to look at what this says to us about Jesus and then what this means for us. So let's look, first of all, what does this tell us about Jesus? And let's just walk through these verses together. Paul starts in verse 9 with the word therefore, meaning for this reason. And this is significant because this is not an isolated statement. And we're going to see when we get to the practical application how important the connection is between the descent of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. It is directly connected to what Jesus did as he left heaven and came to earth and demonstrated this selfless humility, being obedient. Remember it says obedient to the point of death. Who is he obedient to? He was obedient to the Father. He was obedient to the point of death. And because of his obedience, because of his humility, because of his great descent to come and not seek to be served, but to serve, but not to uh, be served, but to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many, because of that, look at what it says. God has highly exalted him. What that means is that God has chosen to honor Jesus Christ, to lift him up, to demonstrate that he is unlike anyone else. It says that it was not only God's design to lift him up, but to highly exalt him, meaning that it was God's intention to exalt Jesus Christ above anything else, that he is above all. To the greatest possible degree, God the Father has exalted Jesus Christ. God has given Jesus the greatest honor that God could ever bestow. Because of Christ's obedience, God has chosen to place upon Jesus the greatest honor and exalt him above everything else. You say, well, how is it that God the Father exalted Jesus Christ? How is it that God separated Christ and lifted him up and demonstrated to us that there is no one else to be compared to Jesus Christ, that he is above all things? Well, the answer is through his resurrection, his ascension, and listen carefully, what theologians call his session, meaning the moment in which Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. Think about how God the Father exalted Jesus Christ and demonstrated that Jesus is unlike any other through his resurrection. That at that very moment in which it appeared that all of heaven was silent, that the enemy had finally declared his victory, that death had won and sin had won and Satan had the victory, it is at that moment in which God raised Christ from the dead to demonstrate that Christ has power and authority over sin and Satan and hell. It was at that moment in which Christ was exalted to demonstrate that death never will have victory over Jesus, nor will it have victory over the people of Christ. 
that sin no longer has dominion over us, that death has lost its sting, that we no longer stand terrified at the prospect of death, but because of the resurrection of Christ, we look at death as actually the entrance into greater life. And so God has exalted Jesus by raising him from the dead and demonstrating that he has power and victory over all of those things. But God also exalted him through his ascension. Now, you know the moment. It was in Luke 24. You see a little bit there, and you see it in Acts chapter 1 as well. When Jesus, before the eyes of the disciples, ascended up and was taken into the clouds. Now, we might think, well, he had to get back somehow, and that's as good a way as any, right? I mean, at some point, Jesus had to get back to heaven. Elijah went in a chariot of fire, but Jesus just ascended right up into the clouds. We might have a tendency to think, well, that it just it had to happen. But there's more to it than that. It's not simply his return, which was glorious, and you can't imagine what was happening in heaven as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, returned back to his proper place. I mean, I think about Luke 15, which says that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. That's the reason we give standing ovations for baptism. So if all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, I wonder what happened in heaven when the one who purchased salvation for every sinner returned. You can't imagine the joy and the excitement in heaven when Jesus returned, but his ascension was not just his return home. His ascension was really his coronation. It was the moment in which Jesus was declared King of kings and Lord of lords. Ephesians 4.10 says it this way, He who descended, Christ, is the one who also ascended above the heavens, listen, that he might fill all things. By filling all things, it means that Jesus Christ ascended that he might take the place, listen, as the sovereign ruler and controller over everything. Jesus was not just going back to heaven. He was going back to a place. He was going to a throne. He was going to be crowned in that place in which he would rule and reign. Now, his ascension was not the end. He did ascend, but we know all throughout Scripture, and this, by the way, gets a ton of attention in the New Testament, that after he ascended, he sat down. It says in Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for our sins, I love how simple this is, he sat down. He sat down. You say, what did Jesus do when he got back to heaven? He sat down. Where did he sit? Well, he sat at the right hand of the Father. What is the significance of the right hand of the Father? Well, the right hand of the Father is the place of greatest honor. So God the Father had a seat for Jesus. He ascended back into heaven. He was crowned as the king of kings. It was his coronation ceremony when all authority was given to him. And then the father said, son, sit right here at my right hand, the place of greatest honor. When I think about this, I think about Mark 10. I love this story. When two of the disciples, James and John, listen to this. This is so great. They go with their mother to Jesus while the other disciples weren't there. And James and John don't ask. They get their, everything about this is great. They get their mother to ask, Jesus, could my two sons 
who are standing there, could one of them sit at your right and one of them sit at your left? Isn't this wonderful? I love moms. Praise God for moms, right? Hey, mom, would you go ask Jesus? These are grown men. Mom, would you go ask Jesus if, if we could sit at the right or the left? I think they knew what every child knows. It's always better to get mom to ask dad, right? So, so moms can ask, and, and they ask, and Jesus says this. He says, listen, that's not my right to give that to you. Only the father puts people at the right and the left. And the reason that James and John could not sit at the right hand of the Father is because Jesus already was the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. All of that honor and all of that authority was bestowed upon Jesus Christ. So I need you to picture this with me. He ascends and he sits. He's crowned. He is now in his new position. He is now not only finished with the earthly work, but he is continuing a new work in which he is ruling and reigning over all things. This is why in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Who gave Jesus all authority? God the Father did. God the Father said, Jesus, as my son, my obedient son, you will sit at my right hand. You will have all honor and all authority will be given to you. You will now rule and reign over all things. This is why it says in Ephesians 1.20 that God raised him up and seated him above all rule and all power and all authority and all dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age and in the age to come, meaning that the seat that Jesus is in is the seat of absolute ultimate authority and every in all of heaven and all of earth and all under the earth is under the submissive rule of Jesus Christ. That's where Jesus is, and that's exactly what he's doing. And it says in this text that, that as he ascended, God the Father gave him a name. Look at the text. He was highly exalted. And the reason I was talking about his resurrection, his ascension, is because that is what it means by highly exalted. And God the Father bestowed on him, gave him a name that is above every name. You say, well, what is that name? Well, look at verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, that's not the name, he already had that name. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, here it is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it with me, that Jesus Christ is Lord. One more time, Jesus Christ is what is the name that God the Father bestowed on Jesus? Jesus ascended, he sat down, and Jesus was declared by the Father, Lord. He was given the name Lord. It says in Acts 2 that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. You see, his ascension, his session, seating down at the right hand of the Father, was a declaration of his honor and authority, and then God put a name upon Jesus by saying, you are now declared Lord. You say, what does that mean? Well, in simple terms, it means this. Jesus is the boss. 
that he is Lord over all things, that there is nothing in all of this world that Jesus does not have complete authority over. He has been given this name. He is Lord. And when we gather together as a church, our declaration is not simply that Jesus is Savior, but that Jesus is Lord, because we do not finish the gospel at his death and burial and resurrection. We continue through his ascension to make the declaration that the reason Jesus matters to every person who walks the face of this earth is because Jesus is, in fact, Lord. He has authority over all things. You say, well, why is it that that happened? Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That that one who is seated at the right hand of the Father is the same one who is waiting until the Father says, Son, it is time to get up and it is time to go rescue your children. He will come. He will rescue his children. He will establish his kingdom on earth where he will rule and reign for all of eternity when finally in all of its fullness sin and death will be done away with. And it is at that moment then there will be no question on anyone's mind who has ever existed who actually is Lord. There will be no more fighting for supremacy as Psalm 2 tells us about. The nations are raging and plotting. They're fighting against the Lord's anointed. They're saying that the Lord has no authority over us and all of that plotting and all of that scheming and all of the fight for supremacy will be done because at that moment everyone will know and everyone will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to me. This is central to the gospel message. This is why Peter talks about it when he preaches the gospel in Acts 2. Because listen, it is not enough to take Jesus as your Savior. You must submit to Jesus as your Lord. You say, what does it actually mean to become a Christian? Well, it means this, that you recognize that you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. And you trust that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life on your behalf and he died a criminal's death in your place so that by believing in the death of Christ and trusting that his death was sufficient to pay for your sins, you might be saved. And then, as Romans 10, 9 says, in order to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is... You must confess the lordship of Christ. You must say, now, because I now see for the first time who Jesus is, I put myself in a place of submissiveness to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is surely some here who came here today wondering why Jesus actually matters. Why the fuss about Jesus? The reason Jesus matters, listen to me, is because Jesus is Lord. And someday, every single person will stand before him and give an account to whether we submitted to him or not. The reason we go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the gospel, whether it be in Bulgaria or Bogart or Athens, Greece or Athens, Georgia, is because from one end of the earth to the other, Jesus is Lord which means we can go into the remotest part of the jungle to people who have never heard about Jesus before and say, there is a king, his name is Jesus, and you must submit to him. And the beauty is, 
is that in inviting us to submit to him as Lord, he is inviting us into the life that we're created to live in the first place. There is no life that gives us real life and real joy and real truth but the life of submission to Jesus. The saddest part about rebelling against Jesus is that you think that in rebelling you have freedom, but the truth is if you're not in a relationship with Christ, you are more of a slave than you could ever be. So he has exalted him and given a name that is above every name so that Jesus Christ is Lord. But let me remind you that this is given to us in this practical call to unity. You say, well, what does this mean for us practically? And I want you to stay with me because this is significant. What, what is the practical implications of this for my daily life? Today, why does it matter that Christ is ascended? Here's the reason. It's because Paul has just finished calling us to live a life of selfless humility. And the last couple of weeks, I've been convinced that the reason it's been so quiet as I've been preaching is not because you're sleeping. I believe by faith that you're listening. But it's because you have become aware of how difficult it is to live like Jesus. Where you are constantly serving and not being served. Where you're dying to self and living for others. Where you're never looking out for your own interest. But at the front of your mind, every moment is the interest of others. Hopefully, you felt that this was almost an impossible task. Because the call to Christ-likeness is incredibly difficult. And we're supposed to come to the end of verse 8 and say to ourselves, how in the world can I be like Christ? How in the world can I have that kind of humility in the home or in the workplace and at church? How am I to do this? And then right when we come to this place where we can't imagine how we can live like Christ, we get a picture of the ascended Christ because it's teaching us this simple truth. Please write this down. It is teaching us that the ascended Christ is our help and our hope in pursuit of Christ-likeness. He is our help and our hope. And the only reason we have hope and help is because Christ is ascended. We would be left commanded to be like Christ without any hope or any help if it was not for the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus shows that the exalted Christ is our help and hope in pursuit of Christ-likeness. Let me mention a few things about that. The exalted Christ is our help as we pursue Christ-likeness. Listen, if you want to be like Christ at all, if there's a desire in your heart to be like Christ, then there is help for you. And the way in which you're going to find help is by seeing Christ the way he is and receiving the help that is offered to you by the exalted Christ. See, because Philippians 2 gives us this picture of a Christ who is seated but not finished. He is still working. He is still on the move. But he is on the move and working through his body, the church of Jesus Christ. And he is supporting his church, and he is encouraging his church, and he is blessing his church. A.W. Tozer preached a sermon on the book of Hebrews, and he talked about the ascended Christ, and he refers to Jesus as this. Listen, he says, Jesus is our man in glory. He's our man in glory. I love that picture because it's a picture of Christ on his throne supporting and encouraging and watching over his children. I mean... I'm not going to read it, but go home this afternoon to read Romans chapter 8. 
What is Jesus doing right now? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. He's supporting us. He's working all things together for our good. Listen, he is ensuring our success. Philippians 1, 6 says, The one who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The only reason that you actually can be confident that God will complete the work is because the one who is sovereign over all things is ensuring that you make it to heaven okay. He's, he's our help. He is there at the right hand supporting us. I have to read one passage. Turn to Hebrews 4. I, just, I have to read a couple of verses here under this idea that Jesus is our help as the exalted Christ. Hebrews 4, go to the right, a few books, Hebrews 4. At the end there, verses 11, 12, and 13. I'm sorry, verses 14 through 16, right at the end of Hebrews 4. It says this, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. What does that mean? Jesus passed through the heavens. He ascended. Jesus, the Son of God, because of that, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathizes. Why? Because he lived here. He came in the form of a human. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So listen, verse 16, because Christ has lived here, and because he understands us, and because now he has ascended, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what it says. Jesus completely understands what it's like to live in this world. He lived it. And in every respect, he has been tempted like we are. He understands your temptation. He understands your trials. He understands your difficulties. But he's not just an understanding, listening ear. He is a sovereign ruler and king. And so Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, says to every one of you, every believer, he says this, I understand. I know what you're going through. And from the throne of grace, I want to give you the help that you need every single moment. So it begs this question, how often are you going to the Lord for help? He's offering. I mean, he, he is on his throne saying, everything is at my disposal. If you need help, ask of me. I was really convicted by this text this week. I was really battling in my soul, and I was discouraged and frustrated, not with really anything related to the church. I was just, it was just one of those weeks. Uh, I was in a, a foul pit or... As Pilgrim's Progress would call it, the slew of despond. And I was, you understand, anybody else understand that? And uh, I was just in one of those places, and I felt overwhelmed and discouraged, and I was convicted by my study of this. And I just got away from the family. I took about 30 minutes, and I just poured out my heart to God, and I said, God, I need help. I just, I need help. I mean, I need you to help my soul to be in the place that it needs to be. I've got to preach in like 48 hours, God, so if you could really help, that would be great. You can come fake it. I can't fake it this morning. I got to be on, right? Walking with the Lord, filled with the Spirit. What an amazing thing that the exalted one seated on that throne invites every one of you, listen to it personally, come to me and get help. He is our help in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. But he is also our hope in our pursuit of Christ's likeness. He's our hope. 
Philippians 2 gives us this paradigm. Uh, this paradigm is given where Jesus descends in obedience, and then he ascends because of his obedience. And the paradigm is one that is then given to us. It's in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Philippians 2 is a paradigm for life. Those who choose to humble themselves will get exalted. This is the way the kingdom works. The way up in the kingdom is always down. So as you choose to humble yourself, God has promised that he will exalt you. Now let me be very clear that if you choose that path of humbling yourself, you absolutely will get taken advantage of. Can I just be clear? You will be stepped on, and people will take it. Matter of fact, there will be people out there who discover you live like this, and they will love to take advantage of you. I had someone the first week I preached this and said, uh, Pastor, I've been trying to do this. The problem is that there are certain people in my life that keep taking advantage of me, and I say, well, praise the Lord, just keep going. Like, you, you will get stepped on and abused, and then what do you do in those moments? Well, you are reminded of the Beatitudes that blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? Because they get the kingdom. So you just choose to descend, constantly choosing to serve, believing that if you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter 5, 6, he will exalt you. He's our hope. Now, listen to this. Ephesians talks a lot, particularly in chapter 1, about our union with Christ. This is what baptism symbolizes. We're united in his death, we're united in his burial, we're united in his resurrection. Meaning, when you come to Christ, you get all of the benefits of Jesus' righteous life, and his death is credited to your account. His burial is your old life being buried. His resurrection is you getting new life, 2 Corinthians 5. But do you realize, listen carefully, that Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are not only united in his death, burial, and resurrection, we are united in his ascension. Ephesians 2 says this, we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Meaning that his authority is our authority. You say, well, how do, how do we fight sin? We fight it in the authority of God that has been given to us because we have been united with him. And we're ascended with him. How do we do spiritual warfare? Let me tell you how we do spiritual warfare. Is we declare to the enemy that we are not only united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, we are united to him with his ascension so I can stand in the authority of Jesus Christ and demand the enemy to be gone. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, not because you have any power at all, but because you have the authority of Christ. How can we go to a door and say, you need to give your life to Jesus Christ? Because we walk in the authority of Christ. We're united in his authority. This is the great hope we have in a life of righteousness, that we can have victory because we're seated with him in the heavenly places. Christ, the exalted Christ, is our help and hope as we pursue Christ's likeness. Now let me say just a word about the last line here and I'll be done. It says all of this is to the glory of God the Father. Now we have spent three weeks on this one text. Three weeks on verses 1 through 11. And it needs to be wrapped up with this one thought. That Philippians 2 verse 3 says that we need to be warned 
to not have selfish ambition or conceit. And the reason is, and we talked about this last week, is that we have this craving. Listen to me very carefully. We're done, literally done in just, it's not one of those, we'll be done in a few minutes and we're not, I promise. Stay with me. I've got to wrap this up to the glory of God. Listen to this. We have been called to live this consistent life of self-denial. And the reason that's so hard is because we crave attention. We crave affirmation. We crave acceptance. I talked about this last week. Man, we just, we have this insatiable desire to be served and to be praised and to be loved. And it's in every single one of us. But, but here's really the option that comes before us at the end of this text. The option is this. You can choose to live for your glory, exalting yourself and being served, or you can choose to live for God's glory, humbling yourself and serving. And the point of what it says here is those who make the descent, humble themselves, serve others, live in such a way that God the Father gets the glory. And so it is that you have a choice to make. Are you going to live for your glory or for his? We long to receive glory. And one of the ways we die to ourselves to say, I am going to submit myself to the authority of Christ and live in such a way that Christ gets the glory even if I never do. See, here is Jesus deserving all honor and all glory and all praise, submitting himself completely to be abused and taken advantage of for the glory of God the Father. This is exactly why Hebrews 12 says, look to Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When it commands us to look to Jesus, one of the things we look at is Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Let me ask you this. How do you see Jesus? You see him crucified? Do you see him buried? Do you see him resurrected? Or do you see him ascended at the right hand of the Father? Do you see him as Savior, as Lord? Are you living with him as Savior and Lord? Are you willing to make that great descent, not only so that you might be exalted, but that God might be glorified? It is the life God is calling you to, and it is the only life worth living. And I can say that based upon the good promises of God, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.